3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everybody and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. My name's Jackson, returning from holidays after a very nice long break and I am here with James. Good morning. Good morning Jackson, welcome back. Thank you. And with Joe. Morning, Jackson. Thanks for having me. As a guest programmer this morning, uh, thanks for being here, Joe, bright and early. A great way to start the week in 3CR Studio. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, how was your break, James? Um, well, it was pretty good. We were back here, I was back here last week, and with some other guests, Christian and Jacob. So it's great to have some other people coming in to share the studio while some of our regular panelists are away. It was good to... Yeah, I guess just take a little bit of a break over the Christmas, New Year sort of period and recharge for the year. Mm-hmm. And how did you do that? What were your main recharging methods? Did you lie in the sun? Um, yeah, I did a lot of a fair bit of outdoor activity out in the country and watching a bit of the cricket was pretty good, catching up with some friends and family and, um, yeah, just, I guess, some typical Australian summer type activities. What about you, Joe? Yeah, a bit of reading books for all was a pretty big part of it. Um, I didn't actually get to the beach, which is the first time in the summer holidays I've never got to the beach. Bit of family, um, following the media. I got caught up a little bit in following what was going on in Melbourne a little bit too much because it's pretty close to home. Um, living in the western suburbs and, yeah, just back into life in Melbourne, the real working life now starting last Monday, so I've done it for a week, and it's quite refreshing to be here this week to change things up a little bit. What was drawing your attention uh, in the city of Melbourne over the Christmas period? Weren't you lulled into a you know, a, a bit of a narcoleptic sleep uh, by the dulcet t- tones of Jared Waitley and his swan song for the ABC <laughs> uh, with the cricket, or did you find a way to I had rile to go yourself out to, I had to go out to dinner every night as part of the <laughs> resistance movement um, to demonstrate <laughs> that everything was okay, so it actually hit my hip pocket quite hardly. Um, no, it was, it was used crime stuff every day in the media because that's an area I work in. Um, so I'm working with a lot of kids that are exposed to that and are involved with that in different ways um, and youth justice stuff as well. And it's been this really strange intersection of um, the racism we've had against the African community in Melbourne for a long time that's been increasing with the general anti-immigration racism and anti-refugee racism that we've had. And then we've had the youth justice stuff going on at the same time, which is about a more punitive response, um, throwing away a lot of the things that worked, committing to building a 240-bed prison um, for the youth when there is actually a declining prison rate, declining crime rate. So those two things kind of came together in a head, um, and it's been pretty scary, especially for the African community and the kids walking the streets and hanging out and just trying to live their lives. 
Yeah, I think this uh, building of more prisons is a pretty cynical response to the issues, you know, the intersecting issues we're seeing that may be causing quote unquote antisocial behaviour, of which, you know, employment um, and educational opportunities are probably a massive part. You know, when you're closing down TAFEs and opening prisons, I mean, it's a pretty, um, the, the cynic in me kind of sees a one door closing, another one opening there, unless you want to work as a prison warden or in our um, honourable armed forces. I don't see a lot of job ads on TV, but you do see ads for both of those. Yeah, that's uh, exactly and, right. And then you hear that we've got skill shortages all over the country in, in trades and, um, you know, uh, good good jobs rather than <laughs> jobs in the military industrial complex, you know. So. so, yeah, that was my holiday was kind of following that and ready to come back to work and... Um, start working with some of these kids that have been exposed to all of that and kind of seeing how they're going and how it's all sitting with them. So what's your role in the youth justice system? Um, I work in education with young people and I also do some policy work in youth justice as well. So I do both sides. Mm -hmm. And there's something we're going to touch on, I think, a couple of times through the show is, I guess, the impact on some of the communities of not just what... um, Peter Dutton said, which we spoke a little bit about last week on the show, but also, I guess, the response from Dan Andrews and the Victorian government mm. and the flow-on effects of... I think, well, coming up next, we're going to do a little bit of a look at the reviews of some things that we've been, been watching and reading and things. And one of the things I was going to touch on was Romper Stomper, and there's been some, I guess, flow-on effects already from that with um, the True Blue crew and some of those people's responses to... That, that show and, and I guess the comments about, you know, what we're going to do about um, African crime gangs. Yeah, I think it's something that the... It was interesting, I, I have an interview coming up today with Cot Manola, who's a, uh, the chairperson of the South Sudanese uh, Community Association in Victoria. And while he wasn't able to expand on it too much in, in the interview, I think a concern for those coming together is how to respond for the increase of the of these vigilante style groups um, and how to present in a way that isn't going to um, validate or encourage their behaviour in any way but you know, as we were just talking before the show um, and you were saying Joe that Dan Andrews didn't exactly come out and um, forcibly um, reprimand those who are planning to take the law into their own hands uh, and they were meeting in the open yesterday I believe, the UPF and True Blue, True Blue, True Blue Crew I should say yeah, even more concerning was the way that uh, that was reported. So I think the police actually sent an, um, an email out to all media organisations telling them to change their language, and they actually have stopped saying, like, African gangs quite as much and talking about it as youth crime in response to that a little bit. But what Channel 7 did do was really hold these right-wing um, crazies up as respectable community leaders and the way that they talked to them, the way that they said... They're actually meeting for community safety. They're working to protect the community. And they kind of juxtaposed that with the Victorian police and Daniel Andrews that weren't doing enough. So it was, it's quite, although these people have been in the media a lot, usually they've been in the media for doing, you know, really stupid, crazy, racist things. Um, this time they were in the media as respected community leaders. So it was a really scary contrast in that way. Scary turn of events. It's page two of The Age today. Is, uh I think it said the headline is a tale of two meetings. It's talking about uh, some of the police and, and um, community, oh, African community um, members kind of going out and doing things in the community as opposed to that 
that meeting then happened, I think, in Cheltenham. So what about a bit of um, art imitating life or perhaps um, inspiring people uh, to attend some of these meetings? What did you think of Romper Stomper, the new uh, Australian production on Stan? Yes, uh, I felt like it was something that needed to watch, I guess, in the context of um, the protests and things happening, the fact that it's set in Melbourne, all those kind of things. And yeah, it, it's not, um, I guess, it's not something that is really a high, high level kind of political take on things for a start. You know, I think that it's, it's not a, it's not a, also, also not a HBO kind of like gripping, dirty drama and, and all that kind of thing. We're kind of like, I guess, spoilt in the sense of, how we see drama of TV and things these days, but it certainly, it feels like a soap opera Neighbours type show that is taking on, you know, a context that we know very well in terms of, um, you know, what's happening with these kind of far-right groups and a type of response, I guess, in the the anti-fash is what the group is called, um, the response in the show. And I, I watched a bit of the original film, the 1992 Romper Stopper film with um, Russell Crowe mm-hmm. um, as well. And it, it's very, they have, I had forgotten, I guess, a lot of the film. And they've very much taken, not the exact story, but really elements of and transcribed them into episodes. And with the show just coming out, I think, you know, uh, a week or two ago, and the response of the True Blue crew to call this meeting, it's hard not to see that as a direct parallel of what happens in the show, where they they have these uh, night patrols in the show. Um, I guess spoiler alerts for anyone who um, is wanting to, you know, not to know too much about the show, maybe listen um, again to this this review later. But yeah, it's hard not to see that that is a direct link. And I think there was an Age article that came out far-right group threatens to take a stand of African gangs, which is the article which was talking about this meeting. And I saw that came out the next day after I watched the show, and it's hard not to see that as a direct link from from the show. And I guess that's a really scary response of, yes, I don't know, I guess you can't necessarily not... You know, there are things that need to be spoken about and whatever, but it's not a critique of these groups. It's, it, you know, um, yeah. And is it engaging with any of the, I guess, nuance or real politic of what drives disenfranchised, um, uh, to, 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 to cast it in a um, sympathetic light? You know, what, you know, we are seeing across the world panic around immigration, you know, a, a real return of xenophobia, closed borders, nationalism, some white supremacy is, uh, you know, jumping on to some of those, you know, I would argue economic drivers where people mm. are feeling very insecure. I feel like that the times when I've gone down and opposed the UPF or the True Blue Crew, what has disturbed me the most has been the flying of the Union flag, the Indigenous flag, and even the the Australian flag, which I don't feel particularly uh, attached to, but I felt 
upset that it was being, you know, misused in this way or, you know, misappropriated uh, in this, you know, very confrontational, outwardly racist, um, you know, behaviour and language. But behind that all is a lot of people struggling with mass unemployment, with, um, you know, lack of education, with drug and alcohol issues. I think they're all intersecting, which, interestingly, is a lot of the intersections, you know, are causing youth antisocial behaviour amongst all different communities. Does does the show engage with any of those drivers towards this behaviour? No, I think it's a very low-level political show, and it doesn't really try to grapple with or understand any of those kind of things, I don't think. I mean, I guess contrasting that to the movie, which was disturbing in a lot of other ways. I mean, one of the things that really stood out in re-watching the movie was the... Um, Nazi punk songs that were happening and listening to the lyrics on that and that was kind of more confronting in a way but that that movie you know it really it went into the kind of trauma and and things that uh were alienating these like really poor you know working class people to make a response to what was then um perceived as like an Asian um migration into the Footscray kind of area and that there's actually a scene uh, where they kick out these lefties from a warehouse and there's a huge 3CR um, poster in the background amongst a lot of other political posters of that kind of era. But, yeah, I think it, it certainly t- tried to grapple a, little, a lot more with a different but uh, a political position there. Although, again, I, I think that it had a flow-on effect of inspiring... Um, Nazis, as opposed to inspiring an anti-fascist response to to the kind of uh, questions it was raising, and I think Rumpus, uh, the new Rumpus Stomper can only have a negative impact in that as well. So I think I watched maybe three episodes of it, and some of it was quite cringeworthy. Some of the acting was actually was better than I thought at times. Um, it did paint the fascists, the right-wing group, as coming as a working class roots to some extent. So some of them were unemployed initially and connected to them that way. But it definitely didn't tease that out um, in any way. And then the anti-fash group are, you know, comfortable uni students, not exposed to it at all. And it's really between those two. There's a little touch. Um, there are some characters from the Muslim community and the African community is literally a gang. And wow. that's all, so that's not teased out at all you're not looked at what's going on there so it's it's extremely shallow and i think the danger of that and it's being held up as like dealing with issues no one wants to talk about and all of that but the reality is it's not dealing with any of those issues all it is is kind of glorifying the violence and some of the scenes i was really horrified by was um the anti-fascists they did it twice anti-fasc went to attack the fascist group um rather than you know what has actually happened, which is trying to, you know, shut them down or push them off rather than an outright violent attack, which is what both were kind of like... They were both ambushes. So they ambushed them on both accounts. And on one of the times, um, there was basically... It was a trap, so they got attacked again. And the scenery was of um, these Nazis, these right-wing fascists, beating up um, anti-fascist uni students. Like, it was it was really bloody, and it was this... Put to a soundtrack. Yeah, and it was done in like slow motion slow-mo, of them just. Yeah, yeah exactly that. 
Uh, it really plays into the media's incredibly irresponsible reporting of these clashes as well, where they seem to refuse to engage in the issues that have brought people into the streets. The reason that so many people are standing there in the face of a lot of police uh, violence as well. So there have got to be important reasons. You know, people don't just go out to have a bit of biffo, uh, the sharpies of the 1950s. I think people are brought there for valid political reasons, some of them on both sides, you know, but there's no engagement with the issues that are driving people to the streets. They just film any kind of violent confrontation that erupts and even seem to promote them by standing right in the middle. And, you know, it just is... And uh, also that there's not people from the community taking, um, actually standing up and responding to these things. It's just uni students that are doing it. And there was the opening scene is at a halal, halal food festival and there's this big group um, of racists there spouting all their racist nationalist stuff and the cowering um, Muslim community kind of like scared to say anything and respond and it's up to the uni students to ambush them. When in reality, if you look at what happened recently at Flemington, um, these oppressed communities are capable of standing up for themselves and will respond um, and have been responding in Melbourne for a long time to the racism that's around. Mm. And that's something that should be celebrated rather than actually sidelined or rewritten out of history. We're talking about, uh, and I'm making an assumption here, I, I know someone is going to talk about the new Star Wars film, but I was going to say talking about uh, shallow representations of political action. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't seen the film, but... Um, Joe, have you seen it, James? I've seen it, yeah. I'll let James kind of lead it. He's thought about it a little bit more, but I was quite... Oh, well, it's one of those funny things. You go into a cinema... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yes. And you're, it's a blockbuster movie, so um, your hope of actually getting any sort of analysis isn't really there. But whenever there's any sort of touch on something slightly left-wing or a critique of um, the world that you might agree with, it's kind of comforting and... You know, even I didn't actually enjoy the film um, in compared to other Star Wars movies. So that was kind of all it had for me was a couple of the a few lines that were really quite good, um, and some contrasts of the way people lived, um, and people yeah people taking action and actually winning. So yeah, I'll let James lead it. I mean, I guess the, I thought the most interesting thing was that two of the characters went on a mission to a different planet and the way that the planet was i guess described is this really beautiful place but it was a it was like a huge casino basically and the characters inside the casino really reminded me of Ralph Steedman's um drawings who uh drew the um fear and loathing yeah pictures for Hunter S Thompson's books and the scenes in um fear and loathing where they go to the casino and there's kind of these grotesque like dinosaurs and things that are kind of like just gobbling up the grotesque nature of capitalism and the gambling and excess and whatever. That was, it really reminded me of that. There's like little creatures kind of eating money and, and all this kind of thing. And the two characters went out to this kind of balcony and one of the characters was talking about how beautiful everything was there. And the other character said, you know, you need to look closer. And, um, that character looked through uh, binoculars and could see the child slaves and and a really kind of like the underlying nature of what was happening there and then they said well the only reason only way you can get to this kind of amount of money and this kind of power is if you're an arms dealer and so it was this 
you know, that you, is this, I guess, yeah, really interesting kind of look at the arms industry and, you know, there was another character then who was kind of like working for both sides as an arms dealer and the fact that, you know, everyone is buying the weapons, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, that kind of line is blurred. It's really, if you want to get rich, you've got to sell weapons. And I thought that that was a, it was a small part of the film, but it was a really interesting kind of perspective on what is real life, really. Mm. And it is parts of the film that, in all those Star Wars films, they there's certain scenes that are much more exciting for people, um, and they grab onto it. So if you think of, like, the Ewoks or something, people remember that. They might not remember what Star Wars film it's from, but I think this scene, for a lot of people, they might really remember that one. And there's animal rights stuff that's going on there as well. Um, mm. So, so perhaps I think a little it's more a good of an thing. En- a little more engagement than I assumed, perhaps, then. I'm just showing my uh, ignorance there about the depths that Star Wars is going to. At least they are presenting some of these... Um, you know, sad realities of this late-stage capitalism that we find ourselves in. Uh, briefly, it reminds me of one excerpt I've been reading, Fire and the Fury, which is really just a gossip column about everything we already knew about Donald Trump and how uh, unfit and incompetent, he, uh, unready for this role he was and remains to be, and it's a dysfunctional White House and a dysfunctional uh, leading of the free world. But uh, one, one line that I liked is um, uh, Michael Wolf said that Trump knows himself um, better than anyone else did and he, he paints this example. They were flying in a private jet over Atlantic City where Trump had just opened a new casino and he's flying with a billionaire friend and his uh, European supermodel partner. And he says, come down to Atlantic City, I'm going to show you my casino. And his friend says, there's nothing down there but white trash. And the model says, what is this white trash? And Donald says, oh, they're fantastic. They're just like me, except they're poor. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's, it is. It's, a, it's chuckle-worthy, as the mm. book is, but it does, um, you know, hide to some, yeah, some sad realities of, yeah, of, yeah. of the world around us. But we've run out of time for our review section. We might discuss a little more of that a bit later on. Joe, I think you had a song that you wanted to play. Yes. Yeah, so chuck that on while we get our first interview on the line. What is the song? It's the Staple Singers, um, Washington, We're Watching You, so it fits quite well with um, Fire and the Fury. <laughs> oh, beautiful. I'll chuck that on now. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. What was that song we just heard again, Joe? That was the Staple Singers, Washington, We're Watching You, a bit of a wake-up Monday morning song. And now we are joined on the line. I'll let James introduce this, actually. Yeah, we've got Sue Bolton, who is uh, Councillor Morland and also part of the Toxic Faulkner campaign. Are you there, Sue? Hi, how's it going? We're great, thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us this morning. No problem. Would you be able to just, I guess, start by telling um, the listeners a little bit about what the Toxic Faulkner campaign is, and then maybe we can um, hear about the upcoming VCAT hearing? Yes, so basically um, this campaign, Toxic Free Faulkner, began because a contaminated site was going to be developed um, uh, by a developer, not a big development, just a couple of warehouses, but it's in the historic memory of some of the older people about what was produced on that site. Uh, it used to be owned by New Farm, which used to make all sorts of agricultural pesticides and chemicals. But on that site, it also produced 
the two main chemicals of, of which make up Agent Orange. Uh, so 24T, 24D and 245T. And when those two chemicals are mixed together to make Agent Orange, they, um, they create the byproduct dioxin. And dioxin is, isn't usually found in the natural world. It's usually an entirely human-made chemical and it is one of the most deadly chemicals known to humans. Um, in Melbourne, in Australia, there wouldn't be many contaminate, contaminated sites that have dioxin on them. You've got a lot of contaminated sites contaminated with all sorts of things, but not many with dioxin. And the site, there, there was a big campaign by the local residents and the Faulkner Broadmeadows Progress Association to close down the factory, which went from the late 50s to uh, the early 70s, 1974, when they eventually succeeded in getting the factory closed down. And the smell was putrid, so they had a lot of midnight and 2am protests outside the factory gates at that time when it was functioning. Um, it was, they couldn't grow uh, plants in their gardens, the paint peeled off their houses and their fences. So it's a little street in Faulkner which backs onto the Mary Creek with um, factories on one side and houses on the other side. So eventually they managed to force the factory to be closed down. But then they had about another 18-year battle to force some level of cleaning up. Um, so the factory was just left there. Everyone who bought the site... Um, then found that it painted whatever they produced on the site. Um, and then I think what happened is Greenpeace thoroughly embarrassed the um, EPA in um, 1990 uh, when they sort of did a, a spectacular action uh, at the Laverton plant because that's where, where the company shifted to Laverton um, and they're still there today and they still produce exactly the same chemicals and they've still got a very bad safety record is my understanding today um, but Greenpeace carried out a spectacular action which demonstrated that this company was pumping dioxin straight into the sewage system uh, which led to a high um, count of dioxins in um, the Werribee treatment plant and I think that embarrassed the EPA into um, doing a clean-up of the site, but it was never properly cleaned up. It was only partially cleaned up and then a clay cap whacked on top. Now, the residents believed that the site was never to be built on together. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, and they, uh, the final um, audit uh, said that it could be built on if it was light industrial but it did say the clay cap shouldn't be penetrated. Um, so fast forward to today, and you'd think such a dangerous site would be red flagged by the EPA, by the local council, by all of the authorities. Um, but no, <laughs> that's not the case. I'm sure people in 3CR wouldn't be surprised about this. Um, so development application goes in to build two warehouses, and the foundations will absolutely pierce the clay cap. Um, 
residents contacted me. Um, I initiated a public meeting, which led to the formation of Toxic Free Faulkner. It was a really well-attended public meeting, around 100 people. And, you know, all of Faulkner's diversity turned out for the meeting, which was great. But at the council, when I moved a motion for, um, you know, for an independent audit of the site, et cetera, et cetera, um, it was, I thought this might even be unanimous on council, but it ended up being highly controversial. Um, I was accused of, you know, frightening mothers and fathers and their babies about, you know, uh, un- unrealistic or, you know, fearful claims which had no basis and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in, from that beginning where the council, councillors basically treated the residents and me as being hysterical idiots who didn't know what they were talking about. But the group really has built a campaign, a solid campaign, and we managed to get the council all the way from treating us like idiots to the point where we managed to get a unanimous um, recommendation that they reject, that the um, development application get rejected because it will go below the clay cap and and you know once there's construction going below the clay cap then it means um the contamination can start to move in different directions what does it mean for i guess so it's got a clay cap over the area does that mean that it just needs to stay like that i guess forever in terms of you know is there a way that things can be built around there without it exposing the chemicals to people in the area and also obviously the Mary Creek as well, which can contaminate a lot of areas? Well, at the beginning of this, that's what I personally felt and quite a few of the residents felt like, just leave the clay cap there, um, maybe even turn it into a park with plants that don't don't have deep roots um, because you wouldn't want to plant anything which where the roots went down deeply into the contamination. But what I've found out through an environmental scientist who doesn't work in the area anymore, is that even dioxin can be remediated. It's a very expensive process, but it is possible to remediate uh, remediate the site. So I think, um, now we haven't really decided necessarily exactly what option we want, either you know maintain a clay cap or fully remediate it. But we, um, but I think probably now I'm coming around to the remediation as long as it's done properly and it's not some shonky, shonky job. Because I think while the contamination's down there, it, there's always the possibility of it leaking, um, leaching into the creek. And I gather one of the reasons why the site was difficult to clean in the first place. I think a lot of contaminated soil was trucked away and dumped at Tullamarine, Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump. So, you know, one community suffered as a result of another community suffering. Uh, but it's a fractured rock system underneath. So what happens is the contamination, you know, when, when it rains, trickles down in between rocks. So they clean down till they got to the rock. But then, of course, you can't clean... Well, it's difficult 
to clean in between the rocks and you need comprehensive testing because otherwise you can test in this spot and find no contamination but you know half a meter away you can test and there'll be contamination between those two rocks and the groundwater was never ever tested by the original auditor or by the original cleanup so there's never been a test of whether or not the groundwater was contaminated by dioxin and one of the things we've discovered is that the environmental science scientist um, environmental auditor field is also um, you know I gather it's a fairly small field in Australia whereas in the US there's some environmental scientists and environmental auditors who mainly work for community groups but in Australia the system is such that um, with development applications on contaminated sites the developer hires the auditor an environmental scientist and they set the parameters of what they'll save the site of the, of the basis on which the auditor will save the site safe or unsafe. And so obviously developers are going to want to hire the environmental auditor or environmental scientist is most sympathetic to their or most likely to be compliant like with building like, surveyors. Yeah, a bit like a stockbroker hiring the person who evaluates the worth of their stock. Mm. Yeah. So the field is quite fraught, and I didn't really quite realise that at the very beginning. Um, So I think that's also been one of our barriers as well. So every environmental assessment, including by auditors, but not uh, in their statutory capacity, since the since the semi clean up in 1995 just says, well, the site was thoroughly cleaned up in 1995. I mean, they might raise a few concerns, but, you know, I mean, basically they're not prepared to question the fact that that site, that original cleanup, was never done to today's standards and the groundwater was never tested and the footpath, etc. So there's massive issues there and the EPA has also played a very bad role because they played a role in the beginning of this process of convincing councillors that the site was safe as houses that had been thoroughly cleaned up. But I think as the residents have gone along and and the residents and myself and kept on pushing this issue, um, I think the EPA has now recognised that uh, there needs to be a new audit on the site. And one of the really things you spoke was about the chemicals used to make Agent Orange, which was obviously really, I guess, most famous for the use in the Vietnam War. I was in Vietnam last year, and in one of the museums there, there's a whole floor that's dedicated to uh, victims of Agent Orange. And some of the people that their photos and uh, things of that are born today and, you know, of recent time over the last little while still being born with the effects of Agent Orange either genetically passed down or through um, the areas that they lived because the toxins still live within a lot of the areas throughout Vietnam. So I think, like, you know, a look at that is really a clear look at how toxic and how... um, how much of an issue these kind of chemicals can be in the community. Yeah, and we saw... um 
on our four corners in the middle of last year about Williamtown in New South Wales and another location in Western Australia, I believe, where, you know, toxic uh, firefighting foams uh, similar to the ones used at Fiskville have leaked into the water supply and the ongoing and dramatic implications of that and, you know, the culpability of defence. Sorry, Sue, did did you say that the council have decided to put a moratorium on development for the time being? Have you been successful? Well, Uh, the council, we were successful in the end. Um, and I think the really, with the council, we were successful in winning them to, for, winning them from treating us as idiots to a unanimous, unanimously rejecting the development application. But it does really raise the issue that, and I think, you know, also with nuclear industry as well, and, you know, all sorts of, um, terrible industrial practices is if we've had to fight so hard around a site to get recognition by the council, by the EPA and everybody, um, like, what does that say about the future? Like, the you know, the fact that these governmental authorities, which are meant to, <laughs> theoretically meant to protect people, um you know, like the fact that we have to campaign so hard to force them to recognise, you know, the dangers of a site like this. This is such a dangerous site. Should have red flag warnings all over it. Mm. Um, I mean, it was originally the Broadmeadows Council then came to um, Moreland Council after the Council Amalgamations. But it's each um, authority assuring each other that it's, safe and and you know like just not really looking at it in any kind of detail at all and so if there wasn't historical memory amongst those residents and luckily the son of the woman who led the campaign to close down the factory still lives in the area otherwise there wouldn't have been as much historical memory um, so we're going to have to um, start wrapping it up, but I wonder if you could just give a quick um, info to the audience about how people could get involved in, in the campaign and support it and just briefly about the VCAT. Well, um, there's a group, Toxic Free Faulkner. Uh, we've got a Facebook page just called Toxic Free Faulkner. We've also got an email address, toxicfreefaulkner at gmail.com so no dots or spaces or anything just toxicfreefaulkner at gmail.com um, we've sort of got also a fairly limited blog site of the same name as well um, so feel free to contact us on any of those um, means um, that would be wonderful I mean people can also contact me on 0413 and basically, there is now a VCAT case uh, where the developer has taken the council to VCAT for uh, rejecting the application. Um, uh, so the council will, you know, is obliged to um, defend its decision to reject the application. Um, the EPA has applied to join the case. We're not sure exactly whether they'll be on our side or against us. But Toxic Free Faulkner has secured a pro bono lawyer to represent us um, to um, because, you know, I mean, we feel that an independent voice on behalf of the residents is needed 
in the case and we're especially looking for any environmental um, scientist uh, who might be able to provide us with expert opinion, um, especially ones that um, are very sympathetic to uh, the community interests rather than the developer interests. So if you're um, able to help out with the Toxic Free Faulkner campaign, um, jump on to the email address or Facebook page or give Sue a call and um, they'd love to have your support in any of those ways. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up now, but thanks a lot for joining us, Sue, and letting everyone know about their campaign. No, thanks heaps. Bye. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defence fund. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Solidarity Defence Fund. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. So that was Michael Prophet, uh, Four Corners of the World, and um, I played that song because I played that about, I guess, a month ago at Human Rights Day. We did a bit of a takeover of the streets um, for the refugee rally, and that's one of the songs I played there, um, taking over the intersection of Elizabeth and Burke Street. Um, and just a few weeks after that, he sadly passed away. So he was one of the great reggae singers of the 1970s, um, and he's left a great legacy behind him. So now we're going to be doing another new segment. We're trialling a few new segments over the last couple of weeks. And today's on this day. So we're just going to be talking about some interesting kind of events or issues and things that have happened on this day, January 15th. And it's actually um, Martin Luther King Day in America uh, today, which is the third Monday in January, but also the 15th is uh, the day of his birth. So that's certainly a very interesting uh, one to start with to note. Yeah, quite an incredible day in history, this actually. Um, 
when you sent this around, I had a look. I was quite amazed. I guess the first one that's there is 1919 Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the two Spartacist um, communist revolutionaries in Germany, were taken away and killed, um, shot. I think that day is really one to remember in terms of how they were dealt with by the Free Corps um, so rapidly rather than keeping them and... Um, any sort of just to get rid of them as quickly as possible is kind of their technique and it's really important that we remember those two characters um, and I think more recently Rosa Luxemburg's being remembered not just as a, a revolutionary but actually as a political economist and her ideas um, how she actually showed that political economy is really complicated and you can't try and just simplify it down to um, supply and demand and dumb it down, it's not possible. Um, so I think her ideas are now being remembered more, which is great. Um, also on this day, um, Muhammad Gaddafi was proclaimed Premier of Libya in 1970. Uh, <clears throat> 1973, the Vietnam War, citing progress in peace negotiations, President Nixon announced the suspension of offensive action in North Vietnam, which kind of led to the nearly, you know, led to, like, start of the end of the war, I guess. In 1991, the United Nations deadline for the withdrawal of Iraqi forces from the um, occupied, Kuwait, occupied Kuwait expired, which then paved the way for the start of the US invasion and Operation Desert Storm. And 2001 was when Wikipedia began on this day, which is the encyclopedia that, I guess, you know, we rely on now for a lot of information. I guess, I think of the initial period was really derided as like a um, resource, but I think now is, is, I guess, held up in a lot more of an esteem of way of legitimately getting information from. And this day was not just about political developments, but also some incredible scientific um, breakthroughs have happened on this day. So in 2005, the ESA's um, Smart One Lunar Orbiter discovered elements such as calcium, um, aluminium, silicon, iron, and other sur surface elements on the moon, which is, I guess, maybe we've got this movement to mine the moon now, which actually... I was going to say, it's amazing they're still there. Yeah. So I remember... It shows when remarkable restraint. When rap news extractive classes, yeah, and they're they're up there and they're going for it, and it's quite scary. Rap news, if people haven't seen it, it's an incredible um, YouTube news comedy kind of show that's on. Um, and their first one was about the bombing of the moon in order to find out what's underneath it. Mm. Um, so, and that would have happened maybe six years six years after this discovery. So it's all happened quite quickly. Mm. Or you've got a couple of born on this days. So um, Proudhon, who was a French economist and um, politician, I guess, uh, was born on this day. Um, In 1842, uh, Mary MacKillop, the Australian nun um, who was later became a saint, was born. And, of course, Martin Luther King, who we mentioned at the start. And, you know, I guess he's a, you know, such a, an amazing figure in history of the American civil rights movement and what, um, yeah, it was an amazing time, I guess, for a lot of people to have this um, figure to, like, really inspire and to look at trying to change the attitude and uh, laws in America. 
And such a shame that uh, the President of the United States has spent the days leading up to Martin Luther King Day um, <clears throat> demonising entire groups of uh, uh, persons of colour from countries uh, like Haiti and um, uh, a number of countries in Africa as well, um, saying things like, <clears throat> why would we uh, allow so many people with AIDS into our country? Why do we want that? You know, so... It is staggering that I'm sure they'll hold some kind of function um, at the White House uh, overnight. Well, I guess um, like one of uh, Rosa Luxemburg's probably most famous thing was the socialism or barbarism quote. And I guess I was really reminded of that when Donald Trump was elected. And, uh, you know, it's certainly not necessarily gone into total barbarism, but I feel like there's been some opportunities where you know, when we look as well at the attitude of the far right and um, the rise of, of far right groups around the world, that there is that, that kind of uh, decision again of which way are we going to a world of equality or a world of doom and um, giving in to those, you know, really evil forces. Yeah, I mean, the few people that celebrated um, Trump's remarks about s-hole countries were David Duke and Richard Spencer, um, you know, quickly, quick to voice approval uh, online uh, while, you know, allies and other people rushed to condemn. But, yeah, it really just continues a pattern of, you know, out and out. I mean, this is a guy who, in I think in the 1970s, was um, charged under federal law for refusing um, commission housing and housing to black families uh, in New York. So he's got form for years and years. It's not, you know, I think, um, you know, in reading this Michael Wolff's book, all it does is confirm everything you've already uh, suspected in this kind of tabloid uh, Hollywood gotcha style, you know, where you find yourself laughing and then feeling a bit remorseful about laughing because it is so serious and it is going to impact so many people's lives. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Did After reading the book and then these comments came out, did, were you kind of surprised still? No. Or, no I don't it's think, all gone. Well, I think you can go back even to, you know, his first um, speech at the UN. You know, on the, fir- on, his fir- on the first day of his presidency, he went to the CIA uh, to you know, to to mend bridges after his constant attacks on the CIA, which you know it's weird when you find yourself agreeing with Donald Trump. But you know, he went there and said that um, you know, we should have kept the oil when we went to Iraq. He pretty much just uh, he said that we should have committed a war crime, you know, as as the as the leader of the free world. So I, you know, I'm not I'm very rarely shocked by by what he says. I'm 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 shocked that we or that the, the media classes can't seem to move beyond their shock, you know, to or move past Russian collusion, you know. Of course, there's, you know, trolls from every country online, you know, trying to influence political debate. I don't think that's the same as, uh, you know, systemic collusion to rig an election, I think. Because the the asshole comments really did, like, um, were kind of the turning point for a lot of people in the Republican Party to start to speak out a little bit more and a little bit more extremely about who Trump is and what he's doing to the country. Mm. Whereas, you know, there's been criticism from all corners... Um, ever since he came into office, but I think I really noticed a different kind of level in the criticism coming from his own party after those comments. Well, I just suppose, you know, who are the comments directed at? You know, I saw some interesting interviews taken in Alabama with his base, you know, and even they were affronted by the gutter, the gutter-style language of it, how unpresidential it looked, but, you know, they're not... 
you know, and you see Ann Coulter and other right-wing agita- you know, agitators on um, CNN and the BBC saying this is, you know, we need to be honest about these issues. You know, you've got Trump complaining that the, U- that the USA pays for, you know, 27% of the UN's budget, even though there's 193 member countries, you know, just ignoring the fact that they make up 30% of the world's GDP, you know, and the UN was kind of their brainchild as well so it makes sense that they fund it but they're kind of you know just looking at we want more we we without any kind of nuance around you know the way global finances are structured they're jumping up and down the idea that you know crime and um unwanted uh migrants can be just drawn by you know borders made by mainly by colonialists anyway is pretty insane there's just a whole lot of insanity i, can't, I, feel I think a bit the thing that uh is it's just a we're finding out about this stuff i think that previously that presidents and you know political leaders were still behaving in this way and and privately i'm sure donald rumsfeld and Lyndon um, Johnson, some yeah, classic ones. Yep, George Bush and, and those kind of people were saying, well, how can we get this oil? Can we bring it over here? And, you know, I don't think... Because clearly they went into Iraq and also tried to make as much money for American companies and, and things like that as well. So I think it's just that it's it's Donald Trump, but it's also the, the age that we're living in with the way that the access to social media and the way that that has changed the media, journalism, the news cycle, all of that, and the way that Donald Trump engages in that has meant that we have an insight into something that perhaps people didn't really want to have an insight into. Yeah, and yet some people celebrate the unvarnished, you know, truth of the way he talks. It's like he's talking to a mate down the pub, you know, describing it as though, you know, he's just speaking what all of these forgotten Americans, you know, forgotten middle classes want to say. But I don't know, like in, in, in the rush for authenticity, are we going to leave behind decency, you know, equality, these basic ideals, you know, that, of course, you know, the, 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 the document from the founding fathers, you know, they didn't live it in practice, you know, it was a slave nation, you know, and, and many other travesties across the history of the nation. But the ideals in it, I think for anyone, when you read it, are, are pretty uh, striking and, and, and quite high-minded. And to just see them rep- repeatedly trashed and then, I don't know, like I, I don't really see where it's going, you know. It's, I, I feel like the, the rhetoric's getting stronger, more confronting, but there isn't the direct opposition from particularly um, other countries, you know, like the the UK or Australia, you know, taking a stance and being and saying something like, you know, if you want to enjoy the support of other developed nations, you have to behave in a way that uh, inspires uh, the world rather than just denigrates it. And well, I think we, yeah, it's it's not unusual that we're in Australia not we don't have not politicians that are um, you know shouting down America. The last time a US president came to Australia. George Bush, the person that shouted him down in Parliament was Mark Latham. And, wow, it's been an um, interesting kind of time for Mark after that. So maybe they're all too scared that they'll end up becoming <laughs> Mark Latham. I must say, though, it's very rare that I find myself agreeing with Rita Panahi from uh, the News Limited papers, but I must agree that the kind of turning to celebrities to somehow help us out of, of, of the mess that we find us in, you know, holding Oprah up on a pedestal and uh, filmmakers wanting to wear black and make comments about, you know, class-based political realities that they probably never lived through themselves. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I think I can't think of any. I don't know. I can't think of any worse next presidency than a Oprah presidency. Yeah. I mean, she's a the she's a poster child for this false idea of meritocracy for you know being a self-made person for neoliberalism, um, small government, Democrat. I just I don't see her as an answer. And she's a celebrity. What does she know about policy? What is she? Well, and that's the same with a lot of the politicians that are in there now. I think the. The level of academic debate we have on universities itself is so low right now in terms of what's going on in lecture halls and um, ideas being challenged is so low now. And I really thought about that when I saw that um, Rosa Luxemburg had been killed on this day was that my earliest memory of learning about her was I have this image in my head and I'm not sure how historically accurate it is, but it's kind of of her... um, at the top of the lecture hall stairs, shouting at her economics professor, telling him how wrong he is. Um, and she's clearly, like, much more well-read than he was. And I think we need much more of that, of these ideas being challenged front on and people that are challenging them being celebrated. And, um, but then you've got Trump. He's, he's banning um, evidence-based and, and science-based from appearing in budgetary documents. Those words. He doesn't want to see the words evidence-based or science-based in, I don't think he wants written briefs anymore, well, verbal-only briefs, this kind of, yeah, this uh, uh, glorification of anti-intellectualism. And we're getting that in Australia. We're moving to, like, feasibility studies, basically, on, on postgraduate studies. Yeah, so, and, and everyone's got to be held to account on that. I think it's, you know, the death of student unions and student activism and students not actually standing up and demanding that we have a right to this education. Um, we have a right to study these things, and it's in the interest of society as a whole that we study these things, and the politicians. And we and say business. there is an alternative. We don't just study them and swallow it and regurgitate exactly what Ben said. We say we can respond as Miss Luxembourg did and say, you know what, this is baloney, yeah. what, what you're teaching. Well, there's going to be a whole lot of people about to either start university for the first time or going back to uni soon. You can take Joe's advice and make sure you're well read over the next couple of weeks to uh, take the questions up to your lecturers and, and, you know, form a study group in your university. And even though there's no student union, you can still be a student activist and organise. And I think it's it does it requires, like, a certain switch-off in these times to feel that you can be on social media and you can be up-to-date with everything that's going on right now. But in terms of being well-read and actually understanding the deeper complexities and the historical factors that have led to the world being the way it is, you actually need to shut off. You need to go away and um, look at things that have been done before, and they're not going to be popping up on social media. Um, Some of the great ideas out there are hidden, and you've got to really dig for them. Um, And the lecturers out there at the moment aren't digging for them. They're overworked. They're underpaid. They're not paid for doing that extra research that needs to be done. So really, I think in terms of the next step of being able to challenge ideas out there, um, students will play an important role and students that go that, do that extra research and do the really hard work that's required for great ideas to come into existence. Just don't act like the students in Romper Stomper <laughs> on Stan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to play a couple of CSAs and then we'll be back with an interview with uh, Kot Manoa from the South Sudanese Community Association of Victoria. <laughs> In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. So we're joined by Mr. Cot Manoa. Uh, Cot is a lawyer and also he is the chairperson of the South Sudanese Community Association in Victoria. He's also worked extensively with Victoria Police as a community liaison officer. Just last week he appeared with Police Commissioner Graham Ashton to launch a new community task force in response to the so-called youth crime wave, which has um, been dubbed by some sections of the media as an African gang crisis. Uh, Mr. Manoa, thank you so much for speaking to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Thank you, Jackson, for inviting me on your radio show. Uh, so, Mr. Manoa, you're very well placed to talk about this so-called African youth crime problem. Um, it's prominent in all forms of media at the moment in Victoria, and it seems to be generating significant political pressure and angst amongst a, man- a range of groups. I guess, first of all, from your perspective as a community leader and someone who's worked a lot with young people, do you think there is a problem with youth violence and crime within your community? Jackson, uh, it is a very good question you are asking. Yes, I think we are not shying away from accepting the fact that uh, there have been some crime issues committed by young persons, and they ranges from home invasion, uh, you know, aggravated burglaries, some robberies, and some of the offenders, you know, are probably maybe, you know, first-time offenders, mm-hmm. as police have described them, and from what we know in the community, and at the same time, we're not shying away from the fact that, that there are some young people who have some antisocial behaviors in, in, in uh, public spaces where we have seen a bit of uh, violence in places like Werribee or Ecoville Park. But what we are trying to put forward is uh, two things. One is, you know, the crime has no color, and a lot of these young people who are committing uh, offenses you know, are just like any other group of Australian citizens or residents or permanent residents who are criminals, and they should be described as criminals uh, rather than uh, by uh, ethnicity or by their skin color. The second thing that we are trying to put forward is a narrative that, you know, these young people, obviously, there are some who have significant issues in their lives, and some of those root causes maybe down the track on your radio show, we'll discuss them. Mm. I was very interested during the press conference you spoke about these other issues and difficulties that uh, the South Sudanese, but also other migrant communities are facing, which may be exacerbating or leading towards antisocial behaviour. Can you expand a little on that? What, what are these um, 
connected issues within your community that, that you see as most important to address? Yes, some of these issues are, one, we are realizing that in a lot of young people who came here, probably maybe came here when they were teenagers or probably maybe born here, and number one thing that we are seeing is that a lot of them don't have the life experiences that many of us uh, had when we came to Australia as migrants, and our sole purpose was obviously looking for in a second chance in life, having run from a war rubbish country, you're trying to aim to have better opportunities and making use of better opportunities available. The last thing in the minds of those people is to cause problems or be criminals. Mm. Uh, the other thing that we're realizing from these young people is that they are not putting as much effort in school and they are dropping out of school. And we're realizing, you know, from what they're saying, that they have some issues happening within school. And some of those issues, you know, are buried. These other, some of them are not coping to uh, sustain uh, being in school because either studying is hard and the one alternative career path like going to TAFE or probably maybe doing internship courses and those opportunities are not there. And often the are institutions where they have a lot of time in their end and are not actually... Uh, engage or in employment and, and often the peer pressure then sets in mm-hmm. and then get uh, they all get misdirected we also have the issues of alcohol and drugs when these issues get founded they become other issues mm-hmm. the other element of compounding issues that we're seeing is that obviously you know no doubt the fact that a lot of families have had traumatic past experiences of war and you know, disorientation, often we've seen split families or families who are single parents or probably maybe have no parents at all. Mm. Or those who have gone through significant war trauma and often the concept of mental health is not quite understood. So a lot of these parents are struggling probably with depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and we are struggling on a day-to-day basis dealing with a number of issues like unemployment, which mm. adds on to the burden, mm. social isolation, which adds on to all these sorts of issues. So mm. you would ideally assume that, you know, families in that context will struggle to bring up teenagers who are going through a lot of teenage, teenage you know, rivaling and, you know, issues within themselves and adolescents at the same time. Yeah, so very- you would be able to see that yeah. I was very, I'm very interested in something you've been talking about there because, uh, you know, early on you were saying that some of the initial arrivees had been through uh, some terrible traumas in their lives, whether it was war or displacement, disorientation, and this um, could have the impact. And, uh, and I imagine it did. I know you yourself uh, lived in refugee camps, were displaced, uh, and eventually came to Australia. And in that uh, journey, yeah, you look for a life free from violence, free from uh, crime, I suppose, having such a um, <clears throat> close-up interaction with it early in your life. But then, you know, for some second-generation kids where they haven't had that and, you know, they're not so much looking for that second chance, it creates its own set of uh, complications. Exactly. And that is the point which I raised earlier on, that obviously this young person, you know, see, you know, and... They are growing up in an environment with good roads, good, you know, safety, good security, 
and you know tranquility and all the sorts of peace and prosperity and stability that comes with it in Australian communities. But they don't imagine for a second what the parents have gone through, or the brothers or guardians. Mm. They don't imagine for a moment that you know this peaceful environment obviously was an effort for them to come here through various elders or you know parents mm -hmm. that got them uh, here. So the reality is, these young persons obviously don't have a sense of direction. They don't have a sense of directions as to what they need to be doing with their lives, and often. You know, they easily become vulnerable to peer pressure and peer influence. But then on, on the flip side, you know, there are a lot of um, young people from Africa and other parts of the world who have come here and been incredibly successful. I know there's been a recent movement online using the, the hashtag African Gangs started by another South Sudanese lawyer, um, Maker Mayek, where young uh, Sudanese and other African uh, people are sharing images of themselves graduating from university, uh, going to football matches, having barbecues with friends and using the hashtag, ironically, African Gangs. I mean, how how has the kind of hyperbole and um, the hysteria in the media about these issues been affecting those young people in your community who are not turning to antisocial behaviour? Uh, these media sensationalisations of uh, the gang and the coverage about the alleged African gang crisis has caused a lot of uh, angst and disadvantage. One is we see racial profiling, you know, among young persons, you know, at the parks or shops. So you see young people who are going out, you know, to play in the parks or have good time. But instead of actually going for that purpose, we see uh, a rejection or a sense of rejection from the neighborhood or from those who uh, meet them or a sense of suspicion and seeing them as troublemakers you know, mm. just coming with those prejudgments about them. We also see uh, long-term it is going to have effect, an impact on employment. So often when these things happen, young people often will struggle to get, you know, interviews. Or when they get job interviews, they will never get get employed because there is often that suspicion. Uh, we also see... Uh, impact on school uh, and, and their schooling. So often, for example, when you see that sort of coverage, you know, the teachers are human beings and often they have their own prejudices. And sometimes in the past we have heard from young people that they get isolated in school. You know, the parents uh, whose children go to some of those schools with young people often become skeptical and, you know, don't want the children to interact with African kids, and often when they are going out, you know, there will be a strain or the, uh, the families of those young people who are the friends socially will have restrictions around uh, those sorts of interactions. Mm -hmm. So unless if it is a, a relationship or a friendship that has gone on for quite some time, often those suspicions become even heightened. So it is having a lot of social consequences in terms of employment and in terms of social integration. 
Why do you think, uh, you know, federal ministers and national newspapers are moved to focus so strongly on the so-called racial aspects of these crimes? You know, just last weekend, uh, just last week, I should say, there was a hundred uh, Afric- uh, Australian or white white youths rioting in Torquay. It didn't receive the same type of coverage as a violent house party in Werribee. Um, why do you think the media focuses so often uh, on the racial aspect of, of of youth crime? And yeah, do 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 you do you think about that? Do do you wonder why the media is so quick to focus on that? There is an African thing that says the outsider is always the problem, mm-hmm. or, or to paraphrase it in a more succinct uh, manner, is to say often that. We don't appreciate the difference, and it is not only in Australia. I think it is well over, and we are used to it. Uh, you know, many Africans, for example, you know, we have experienced this quite a lot of the times. And I think in Australia it is not quite unique. Often, obviously, when you look at Australia, for example, the experiences we're going through, uh, not so long ago or a few months ago it was, again, lesbian communities that were copying the similar issues from federal ministers or the liberal government. Mm. Uh, it was... Vietnamese who went through similar experience. Mm. It is the Lebanese, it is the Muslim, mm. you know, the other, you call it. So often I think it goes the sense of the fact that, you know, we have a long way to go to do in terms of civil education, obviously starting with the media and their own agenda and the Australian community as to the level of sophistication understanding uh, that, you know, various people should take their responsibility seriously, beginning with the media, beginning with the politicians that we should use our differences for the betterment of society rather than as the difference to obviously ridicule or probably maybe try to, you know, demonize certain aspects of our communities or individuals or race. So I think it goes without saying that Australia has a long way, obviously, to catch up in terms of, you know, the media being responsible enough to try and do these sorts of reporting. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the political agenda. You know, often, you know, African community is a small community, and often the boards will not appeal to the right wing, so it is easy to use them as a political uh, football and play them, you know, by playing ethnic cards to try and win uh, the hardcore uh, right wing boards of the Liberal Party. You know, someone like Peter Dutton, obviously, he has no experience living in Victoria, and He's trying to appeal to the Queensland right-wing group through uh, issues happening in Victoria. We see that there is an election coming up in Victoria, and one of the other agenda being used by state opposition party, Matthew Guy, is law and order. Mm. You know, for him, whatever that will appeal to him is the law and order. So why not use this ethnic gang or crisis or whatever he calls it to appeal sympathetically to the victims of crime? and other people who have been affected, or mm. other people who will play along. But importantly, I think Commissioner was saying that we have always seen, you know, crime is always going to be part of our society. Mm. And long before uh, Victoria, I mean, long before Africa ever came to Australia, ever, ever, you know, these sorts of crimes were happening. Mm. And, you know, they were committed at one point by pure white Caucasian who were, you know, in the society, mm. and there were laws that dealt with them, and the criminal behavior was there. 
and there were victims of crime, and always in our society there will be victims of crime, there's no doubt about that. But obviously we'll have to look at issues to try and address, you know, and support the victims of crime without inflaming the issue on race, because at the end of the day, innocent law-abiding citizens of our society will fall victims, and we see obviously that is likely the case of young people who are trying to use opportunity available to them to do good things and contribute to Australian society long or short term or many, many decades ahead as politicians, as future leaders, and as whatever. But if we try to treat them as criminals and treat the ethnic groups as criminals, no doubt, obviously, we're not doing justice to them. So these sorts of issues, obviously, are there and they are real, and no doubt that they will continue to, to remain. I was going to say, um, we're almost out of time, but I'm sure there's a lot of uh, listeners uh, to the program who may work in uh, employment services, who may work in drug and alcohol services, and they may be listening thinking that they would like to provide support to this community as well. If, if they would like to become a, a working partner with the uh, South Sudanese Community Association of Victoria, uh, what's the best thing for them to do? There is a contact form on Victorian Association, I mean Victorian Southern Community Association website, that is www.sscav.com.au, and there is under info, there is a contact form, they should send their inquiries, and yes, I will definitely partner with them, because what we're seeing is that there is significant competition, the government cannot solve all the problems, so there has to be volunteers who are unpaid contributing their time to help, mm-hmm. in one way, second, there is limited number of resources in terms of finances and all this, and the government cannot find money, whether federal or statewide. Uh, and obviously, if there is a funding going to the expert service, like a drug and alcohol service, then we have to bring in cultural expertise mm. and try to uh, manage the service competently and culturally appropriate so that it can address either drug and alcohol or cancelling uh, service in, a, in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. What has happened in the past is obviously, you know, a bit of uh, lack of working partnership relationship or doing it in a more effective manner. And I think, you know, that is already out in the public. So if people have union level of partnership, they should do it with a union interest of making a difference. So there are volunteers who just want to do it out of passion mm-hmm. to change all these sorts of issues, but also people with expertise to bring it in. There will always be paid up, obviously, we don't have any issue with people who are paid for the time and bring in the expertise to do the groundwork. Mm. But at the same time, it has to be culturally appropriate to try and incorporate these lots of other uh, nuances that may look simple, but sometimes may not make the service uh, be engaged or engaging with other people that should be using it. So that would be my advice. I'm sure that's where an organisation like SSCAV comes in as well to provide that cultural guidance uh, to those expert services. Uh, Mr Manoa, thank you so much for your time today and um, good luck with the task force alongside uh, the police commissioner and other community groups. Um, All the best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jackson. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice.
for Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we have, don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au and uh, wherever you get your podcast, 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, I'm Jackson, I'm here with James and Joe, almost Triple J on 3CR, which is a bad joke, but it escapes <laughs> me. Um, and before that we heard Cot Manoa, who is uh, the chairperson of the South Sudanese Community Association of Victoria, just talking about some of the intersecting issues that lead to antisocial behaviour, not just amongst uh, young people from the African diaspora, but for young people all over the country, um, which we obviously saw in Torquay with a whole lot of white youth riding. And even if you can cast your memory back to Corey Worthington and uh, his heinous party in Narry Warren all those years ago. I don't think it was greeted with quite the same hysteria from the media, but, you know, young people are going to muck up every now and then and tell cops to get nicked when they're just having fun getting drunk. So we're coming really close to the end of the show, but we just wanted to um, talk a little bit about some of the events that are coming up this week. Next week, we're going to be having a little bit of a focus on Indigenous issues as we head up to Invasion Day. That'll be happening uh, later on next week. So we just wanted to, I guess, mainly talk about some of the events that are happening this week in relation to the preparation for the Invasion Day uh, protest and activities in Melbourne. Yeah, so a bit of a, a heads up. The Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, um, for the third year now, have organised seven days of resistance. Um, and their demands, I guess the, the reason for these seven days of resistance is to rid any further celebrations of the 26th of January, to creatively change the environment to resist the 26th of January. So there's going to be all kinds of creative things happening. Um, they've got lots of banner workshops that are going on. Um, That's something I'd like to go to. Yeah, so there's... There's two of those events, and you can find them on Facebook. There's one that's exclusively for mob, and there's one for any allies that want to be involved as well. Um, so if you check out Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance on Facebook, you can see that there. I think this weekend there's a, a poster and banner-making session. Um, they're also calling to build the awareness of history of genocide. So there'll, there'll be all kinds of um, zines being created and um, articles being published um, and any, all creative ways to educate people of the truth of what happened here in this country um, and also the, the promotion of the Stolen Wealth Games. Um, mm. So this year in April in Brisbane, or Gold Coast, sorry, there's going to be the a Empire lot of... Empire well, Games. Yeah, exactly. So they're calling on people to come back um, to fundraise, to get money together, to get mob up there, to get all kinds of activists to go up to the Gold Coast and protest the Stolen Wealth Games in April. So Some great T-shirts available too, the Stolen Wealth Games T-shirts. Mm. Oh yeah, and yeah, I, I, you still see the Black CSD T-shirts around. So Saturday 20th of January is Decolonise Now at the factory in Richmond, a fundraiser for that. And Sunday the 21st is the Black GST special at Melbourne Museum with Margie Thorpe, Robbie Thorpe and Claire Land. And then 26th of January is Invasion Day. So look out, you can get posters and stuff online to print and yeah, 
join the Seven Days of Resistance. And if you're listening somewhere else around Australia, you should check out the local protests and actions happening there to mark Invasion Day. Uh, now we're going to Women on the Line. Thanks very much for joining us this morning on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.